This Jewish History Podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Li'ilu Nishmas Rifka Basavram, may her soul be elevated in heaven. Before I begin, I know that I have been a bit lax on the Jewish History Podcast channel of late. In general, the history podcasts require a lot more preparation than my other podcasts. And since the coronavirus has been somewhat challenging to make new episodes, but rest assured, I am working on multiple new episodes, some like this one on great Jewish giants of the 20th century, some on topics in Israel, some really other exciting stuff that I cannot disclose, so stay tuned. As always, please check out my five other podcast channels, the Parsha Podcast, the Ethics Podcast, the Mitzvah Podcast, Torah 101, and This Jewish Life, and my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. The subject of today's podcast is a bit less well-known than the other giants of the 20th century that we are covering in the Jewish History Podcast, but he is someone who is definitely worth studying about and learning about. Rabbi Avram Grzynski was the last head of the Slabat Yeshiva in Lithuania. He was the primary disciple of the altar of Slabatka, and he served as his successor. When the altar wanted to found a branch of his yeshiva in Israel, in Hebron, he sent his primary disciple, Rabbi Avram, to establish it. And after the yeshiva was established, they switched places. Rabbi Avram Grudzinski went back to Slabatka to head the yeshiva in the altar's place, and the altar went to Israel to head the yeshiva in Hebron. Rabbi Avram Grudzinski headed the yeshiva in Slabatka until World War II broke out, and he even led a cadre of students in the Kovna ghetto under ghastly conditions. With the destruction of European Jewry in the Holocaust, we have to always remember that a vibrant world of the Lithuanian Musi Yeshiva expired with European Jewry. Of course, the great Yeshivos were resurrected after the war, but they are a shell of their progenitor's glory. If you want to study about what the pre-war yeshiva world was like, Rabbi Grzynski is an exemplar of the glory and the greatness of that lost world. He was a man of unmatched nobility, even aristocracy, a person of flawless, sterling character, a man of unparalleled intellect, a man who also sadly lived a life replete with tragedies, suffering all manners of pain and suffering, punctuated by his macabre murder by the Nazis on the 22nd day of Tama's 1944, exactly 76 years ago. As a disclaimer, I want to point out that Rabbi Grzynski is also my great-grandfather, the father of my maternal grandmother, so for me, this is an especially personal and poignant subject. The scion of a long line of famous rabbis and scholars, Rabbi Avram Grzynski was born in Warsaw, Poland, in 1882. His parents, Rabbi Yitzchak and Chaya Malka Grzynski, were legendary titans of the community in Warsaw. They operated a home 
that was a veritable factory of Torah and kindness and hospitality. Truth is, I wanted to share a bit about Rabbi Avram's background and upbringing, but I was a little bit wary to talk about his parents and the kind of home that they operated because the stories are so fantastic, so superlative, that I imagine the audience will likely doubt their authenticity. But my pledge to you, dear listener, is that the stories that I'm going to share about the Grudzinski home in Warsaw are all documented by first-party accounts. His father, Rabbi Yitzchak, whom everyone called Rabbi Itcha, founded and ran a network of yeshivas, of Torah schools in Warsaw. He took care of young students like an elementary school. He had 13 teachers that he hired, that he fundraised for, that he paid for. He ran a yeshiva for high school-age teens, an advanced yeshiva, and even a kolel, an advanced Talmudic institution for married scholars. Now, this system exists in most Jewish cities in the world today, but it was highly novel in Warsaw in the 19th century. And Rabbi Itcha organized, fundraised for it all, and his wife actually cooked for all the students every day. On an average day, their home hosted 30 guests for lunch. Rabbi Itcha and his wife were beloved by all the Torah giants of their day. In fact, when all the great giants of the Torah world of the 19th century, when they went to Warsaw, they all stayed by his home. The Chafetz Chaim would stay by his father, and in fact, when his descendants, the descendants of Rabbi Itcha, would come to Raden, he would reciprocate that hospitality and have them stay by his home. The Chafetz Chaim described this couple as the pillars of kindness and Torah in Warsaw, and he would chide rabbis from other cities, asking them, why can't you be more like Rabbi Itcha? And he said that if not for Rabbi Itcha, Jewish education would seize in Warsaw. Besides for being a bastion of Torah, the home that Rabbi Avram Grudzinski grew up was a factory of kindness and hospitality, like the house of Abraham, our forefather, according to one of the biographers. And again, the stories are so superlative that reading them, listening to them, we can't imagine anyone that we know behaving with this degree of kindness. Their home was always bustling with people. It was always open for the needy, for the downtrodden. It was the destination for the depressed and for the unfortunate. Everyone who came there was fed, was encouraged, was given guidance, was helped, was given a place to stay. And when they ran out of beds, the parents would forfeit their own beds for their guests. Everyone was welcome there, even lepers, even the mentally deranged. In fact, once a mentally unstable guest actually tried to choke Rabbi Itcha to death in his sleep. I personally wouldn't host such people, but at the Grudzinski home, no one was turned away. When we think of a childhood, we think of frolicking, we think of fun, we think of freedom, we think of lack of responsibility, the home that Rabbi Avram Grzynski was raised in had none of that. It was all hands on deck for this Torah and kindness 
factory. It's just one quick story to show the superlative kindness in this home. There was a man who was sick, who was ill, was also a mute, and loved food. And by the description of the grandson of Herbitscher Grudzinski, he was morbidly obese, and he would love food, but he would only eat very specific foods. He was a choosy beggar. But because he was mute, he wasn't able to communicate which foods he wanted. So what we would say is, hey, listen, beggars can't be choosers. We're going to make food. You eat what we make. If you don't like it, take a hike. But that's not how Rebitsha and Chaim Malka operated. Rebitsha would sit down and go with him through the alphabet until he spelled out the precise food that he wanted and the Grudzinskis promptly made sure that his order was filled. And the grandson tells a story that the man wanted chalent, so he sat down with him, Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It was like, oh, no, no, it doesn't start with Aleph. Man shook his head, no. Bays, Gimel, Dalit, until he got the letter test. Okay, the first letter of the food that this person wants is a test. Until they went through the entire word describing what he wanted, and Richard quickly ran to the store to fulfill his needs. This is unparalleled kindness, unparalleled gentle patience, unparalleled generosity. And the grandson writes that actually the beggar remained with them for a long time. This is the family in which Rabavram Krajinsky was reared. Years later, Rabavram taught his students about the essence of hospitality based upon a verse in Numbers chapter 29, verse 36. And that's the portion of the Torah that talks about the sacrifices that are brought on the festival. And Rashi quotes a midrash that points out that on the successive days of the festival of Sukkot, every day you bring fewer sacrifices than you brought the previous day. Why are we reducing the number of sacrifices that you bring every day? So Rashi tells us that this is teaching us how to treat our guests. The first day, you feed the guest fattened beef. You give him steak. The second day, you give him fish. The third day, it's poultry. The fourth day, it's beans. The fifth day, he's having vegetables. And so on, it goes less and less. And the obvious question is, is that the way you treat guests? Maybe once you're done the wheat, they don't get any food. And Rabbi Ram explained to his students, the essence of hospitality is making someone feel good, feel comfortable, feel at home, to not feel like an outsider, to not feel like a beggar. And therefore, the first day, maybe you roll out the red carpet. But progressively, your job as the host is to make them feel as close to a member of your family, as at ease in your home, and therefore, you're trying to nudge him towards that comfort by treating him in a way that he feels comfortable eating regular food like everyone else in the family. This kind of hospitality, you would imagine, is something that he saw in the home that he grew up in. In 1899, at the age of 17, young Avraham Grudzinski joined the Yeshiva in Slabatka under the leadership of Rabbi Nassim Svifinkel, the altar of Slabatka, who was the subject of the Jewish History Podcast episodes 41 and 42. 
With a few lapses, Slabatka would be his home until his passing in 1944. In Slabatka, he developed a special relationship with the altar. He became his complete, devoted disciple. Now, Slabatka was the ultimate manifestation of a Musar Yeshiva, of a breeding grounds to create the perfectly polished person envisaged by the founder of the Musar movement, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he developed the idea of Musar, the idea of character improvement, work on yourself, improve yourself, perfect yourself, refine your character. And his students, the students of Rabbi Salanter, they further honed the concept of Musar to work on yourself, but also to control yourself, to overcome your instinct, to seize the reins of your life. You decide what you do. No action that you do should be done by whim. You're not a puppet of your whimsical desires. The altar of Slabatka, he added another wrinkle to what Musar means. And that was called Godless Adam, the elevation of man, the greatness of man. He imbued his students with the idea that you are a prince. You are nobility. Rubavram Grudinsky became the exemplar of Slabatka, the ultimate manifestation of the Muslim movement. As Rabbi Sral Salanta taught, a person's life job is to work on yourself, to perfect yourself to disassemble yourself and break every negative character trait that you have, and then to rebuild yourself anew. The altar said about Rabavram, he acquired Musser with his blood. He broke himself to pieces and he rebuilt himself, but no one heard the sounds of the pieces breaking. There was a refrain in Musser. Someone could break their character but everyone hears the bang, meaning that there are some negative consequences of a good thing. Or you have to publicize it. Everyone has to know about your self-improvement. You have to promote your newfound greatness. Rabbi Avram was not like that. He transformed himself and no one knew. No one heard his bones breaking. He was also the paragon of self-control. Everything that he did was thought through, was deliberate. There were no impulses. During the Musul Wars, we'll talk about that in just a bit, there was turmoil in Slabatka, and someone stormed into the room screaming, lifted a chair, and threw it at him. And the witnesses who saw this event, they testified that he did not flinch. He didn't move a muscle. He had total control of himself. Everything was guided by intellect. There was no impulsivity. He had complete iron self-control. And in true Slabatra fashion, Rabavram was a portrait of regal nobility. His appearance was magnificent, even aristocratic. He had striking, sharp eyes, but very calm and very noble. Even in pictures, his regal visage is striking. For two years, he worked on himself to acquire the trait outlined in the Mishnah, in Perkei 
chapters of the fathers. You should greet every person with a pleasant countenance and his face always exuded pleasantness. And even amidst the hell of the Holocaust, his face never revealed his misery and his pain and his suffering. He embodied the true great man of Slavatka. He was a man who had an aura around him. Even the non-Jews of Slabatka revered him. The altar said about him, This is my reward for all my toil. Rabbi Ram Grzynski embodies what I wanted to create. His brother-in-law, one of the leaders of the American Torah world after the war, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, incidentally my namesake, he commented that when Rabbi Grzynski died in 1944, the Musser movement died with him. Although that assertion is hotly contested, everyone agreed that Rabbi Grzynski was the prototype, the archetype, the most shining example of the greatness of the man that the Musser movement envisaged. He became a complete student of the altar. He became a person who had his master's teachings completely organized and front and center in his mind. Even amidst the horrors of the Holocaust, the teachings of his master were always there, present, and neatly organized in his mind. He was fond of sharing the Slabatka philosophy that Musser, it's not some nice thing to do. It's halacha. It's obligatory upon every Jew. And he would point out that the Rif, Al-Fasi, one of the great medieval commentators in the Talmud, he was known to curate only the halachic portions of the Talmud in his commentary, not the non-halachic, agadic, philosophical, ethical parts of the Torah. Yet, if you look at his commentary, there are many citations from the Agadic portions of the Talmud, from the philosophical and ethical portions of the Talmud, and they're featured in the Halachic work of Al-Fasi. This is evidence that the philosophical and ethical parts of Torah are also Halacha. They are also binding Torah law. In every life scenario, Torah gives us guidance, laws of how to behave. Rabbi Avram arrived in Slabatra at the peak of the Musa Wars, and we spoke about this extensively in the podcasts on the altar. At that time, the concept of infusing a yeshiva curriculum with Musa was highly controversial. It was vigorously contested. In fact, the Slabatra yeshiva itself split into two over Musa, with the altar, of course, leading the Musa half of that yeshiva. But the altar did not suffice with his own yeshiva, he directly founded 14 other yeshivas as well. And during the Musser Wars, he would often infuse other yeshivas with cadres of his own students to boost the other yeshiva and to transform them into being Musser yeshivas. Rabbi Avram was sent, along with several dozen other students of Slabatka, to reinforce the yeshiva in Tells in 1905. Now, the Yeshiva Tells had a tortured relationship with Musser. It was originally founded as a non-Musser Yeshiva. There was no Mashkiach, no spiritual dean on staff. 
There was no time dedicated in the schedule of the day for the study of Musr, of, of Torah ethics. There was no regular Musr Shmuz, Musr lectures and discourses. But in 1897, the head of the yeshiva tells Rabbi Gordon, he decided to adopt the Musr platform. And he hired a mashtiach named Rabbi Leib Chasman to institute Musr in the yeshiva. The problem was this was an egalitarian place. And many of the students opposed the Musr approach and they sought to banish Musr from Tells. And some of the opponents of Musr even engaged in egregious, indefensible, and even violent behavior against Musr. Tells's first foray into Musr was a failure. In 1905, they tried again. And the reason for this is that in 1905, it was a year of revolution. There was the Socialist Revolution, the first attempt to overthrow the Tsar in Russia. There was Zionist exuberance, that kind of revolution. And these movements decimated the ranks of all the European shivos, with the exception of the Musa Yeshiva in Slabatka. At that time, it became clear to all that the Musa philosophy was the only way to run a yeshiva in modern times. And Tells once again appealed to the altar to send reinforcements, to stabilize the yeshiva, and to instill it with a spirit of Musar. The altar sent a cadre of his best students and a mashtiach, Rabbi Eliezer Luft, to go and support the yeshiva and Tells and to infuse with Musar. And amongst the students was Rabbi Avraham Grzynski. In the book Mating of Agadol, he cites an article written by a contemporary student of Tells who explains what the rationale was at the time. What was the understanding at the time? And he writes that the Russian yeshiva, the heads of the yeshiva and Tells, they felt justifiably that neither the Zionist movement nor the socialist revolution affected the fortress of the Musarites. The Zionist movement had set all the yeshivos, with the exception of Slavatka, ablaze to the foundations that came out of the struggle in Zionism shaken up and weakened with about half of the most active and talented yeshiva students taken away from the yeshiva and joining the Zionist movement. The revolutionary movements were very visible in the life of the Lithuanian yeshivos. Only the Musa yeshiva, led by the altar, remained intact, without defect. No movement or stream which emptied of the yeshivos affected the Slavatka students. They saw everything. They knew everything. But it didn't hurt them. We all knew well that the Musar students of Slavatka, they read the newspapers. They read and were even experts in the new Hebrew literature. And yet... They lived in a world of their own. Therefore, the administration of many shivos tried to implant Musar in them too and to rebuild the old shivos in the pattern of Knesset Yisrael of Slabatka. So, Rabbi Grzynski joins this cadre in Tells, but the rabble-rousers, the anti-Musar students of Tells, 
they maintained their strident opposition to Musser. And they even continued some of their violent and despicable harassment of the Musserites. To disrupt the Slabaka Musserites, they would whistle and disturb the students in the study hall. They would vandalize the study hall, breaking standards, smashing windows. They would hide the Musser books before the time to study Musser. On Simchas Torah, the rebels threw rocks at the house in which the Slabaka students and their mashkiach were celebrating. According to one account, some of the anti-Musser students actually got drunk and threatened to even kill the new mashkiach. The episode ended traumatically for the Slabatkaites when the threats to perpetrate violence were actualized. This is another quote from Mechina Magadol. It came to the point that they tried to force their way in to the Luft home. Luft is the name of the rabbi, the mashkiach that was sent from Slabatka, and harm him and his students. When the furniture piled up at the door began giving way, Rabbi Avram Grzynski, an exceptionally strong young man, held onto the door for hours until the jam cut into his flesh and left a lifetime scar on his arm. The besieged group finally got a wagon to drive up to a window, whereupon they jumped in and fled tells for their lives. The aftermath of the story is that the Tel Yeshiva closed down temporarily, and when it reopened, all the ringleaders of the opposition to Musser were expelled. This was the first of many instances that Rabavram would serve as the altar's emissary, though I'd imagine none were quite as dramatic. When he returned to Slabatka from Tells, Rabbi Avram was asked to be the reviewer of the altar's discourses. This is a very difficult task because the altar was notorious for speaking cryptically and using few words. Sometimes he would merely string together sources and only the most accomplished students could pick up the connection between the sources and understand his line of reasoning. Rabbi Avram had become such an accomplished scholar and someone who understood the altar and his teaching so completely that he would elaborate and elucidate and explain the meaning of the altar's cryptic messages. After World War I, the altar formally added Rabbi Avram to the Slabatra faculty and Rabbi Avram began delivering Musser discourses of his own in the yeshiva. In 1911, he married Chasia Heller, the daughter of Rabbi Dov Tzvi, universally known as Rabbi Bera Hirsch Heller, the younger Mashtiach of Slabatka, to differentiate him from the Alter, who was the older Mashtiach. Rabbi Bera Hirsch, the father-in-law of Rabbi Ram Krzynski, was a legend on his own account. The Alter said about him that he would never open up another yeshiva unless he had Reb Bera Hirsch at his side. He was also a man of kindness and generosity and gentleness. The altar used to call him, you're like the mother of the yeshiva. You're kindly, you're gentle, and you're always looking out for everyone else's good. When the altar told him that, he was so overcome with emotion, he burst out crying. And the altar said to him, yeah, you see, you are the mother of the yeshiva. He would notice when a poor student had holes in his shoe, and he would send them to the local shoemaker with a note telling the shoemaker to put the new shoes 
on the yeshiva's account. In his capacity as mashtiach, he closely watched all the students. He was monitoring them. He was observing them, but he never reprimanded them. He treated everyone with just love and respect and kindness. His harshest admonishment was shaking his head disapprovingly. In the aforementioned book, Making of Agadol, the author, Rabbi Nassim Kamenetsky, himself a grandson of Rabbi Hirsch, his father, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, married another of Rabbi Hirsch's daughters, Etel. He tells a story of a thief who stole the family's chalant, the family's Shabbos stew. So the thief steals the food from the home of Rabbi Hirsch one Shabbos morning, and Rabbi Hirsch hears the commotion in the kitchen, Someone has stolen our food. He runs after him and he catches him. And he forced him to come back and join the family for the meal. He recognized that this poor chap was just hungry. And he said, okay, we'll feed you. Come here. You're welcome here. In 1924, the altar of Slovakia sent Rabavram to Hebron, to Hebron, the city of the patriarchs in Israel, to found the Hebron Yeshiva branch of the Slovakia Yeshiva. The altar for years had wanted to open a branch of Slabatka in Israel, and he sent Rabavram with the initial cohort of students to found the yeshiva. After a year and a half of setting up the yeshiva, Rabavram and the altar switched places, the altar went to Hebron, and Rabavram succeeded him at the helm of the mothership, the original Knesset yeshiva in Slabatka. Rabbi Isaac Sher, the altar's son-in-law, was promoted to Rosh Hashiva to serve alongside Rebavram. Rabbi Grzynski had another dimension that dominated his life and his work, and that is suffering, which afflicted him in all manners throughout his life. He absorbed the pain without burdening others, and he did not have his spirit broken. And as in everything else in his life, He used his suffering to develop an understanding of the meaning of it, of the lessons of it, of the purposes of it. In fact, in his book, he has an entire treatise explaining the Torah's philosophy on suffering. And he suffered in all kinds of ways. For starters, he was stricken with a lifelong debilitating leg pain. He had a slight limp. And after a failed operation that exacerbated the problem, instead of fixing it, he was racked with pain in his leg for the rest of his life. But that was just the beginning of his Job-like suffering. In 1929, he suffered blow after blow. That year, when he was only 47, his young wife died suddenly leaving him with eight orphans, the oldest being 18. His youngest son, Yitzchak, was just a year old. He was an infant. And in a testament to his personal self-control and his greatness, after his wife passed, he waited two days before saying the blessing of Dayon Ha'emes, of the righteous judge. The halacha tells us that when something good happens to you, you have to bless God. And when something terrible happens to you, when something devastating happens to you, when something tragic happens to you, you also have to bless God. 
with the same intensity. And for two days after his wife passed, he said, I can't do it. I cannot be joyous in the suffering. It took him two days to be able to make the blessing in the same way. Struggling to be happy, even under such tragic circumstances. In the middle of the week of Shiva, the week of mourning over his wife, someone came, one of his students came and told him, I got freed from the army, which was a thing to celebrate greatly. So he gave him a warm embrace and a warm kiss. He had this incredible ability to compartmentalize his pain and to be able to be genuinely joyous in other people's celebration. Ten years after his wife passed, he confided to his nephew in a letter that the pain of his wife's untimely passing was still an open wound that never healed. But no one in his surroundings saw that. In his treatise on suffering, he writes how suffering is the replacement of prophecy. The role of the prophet in Jewish history is not to clarify Jewish law, that's for the Sanhedrin. The role of the prophet is to help each person identify what it is that the Almighty wants of them. What's your unique job in life? What's your life mission? Prophecy was the method through which God communicated to each individual. When prophecy ended, that role was replaced by suffering. Rabbi Grzynski taught us that suffering is God communicating to you, guiding you, showing you what you did right and what you did wrong. Every suffering is a message from the Almighty. He was the exemplar of how to accept suffering, how to live with pain, and how to grow from it. A mere five months after his wife's passing, Rabbi Avram suffered another horrific blow when the Arabs of Hebron and the surrounding villages in Israel perpetrated a horrific and barbaric massacre of the Jewish residents of Hebron. The first victim of these bloodthirsty animals was actually a student of the yeshiva. His name was Shmuel Rosenholtz. He was someone who was renowned for his diligence. And it was Friday afternoon. Everyone else was getting ready for Shabbos. He was already dressed in his Shabbos finest. And he was in the study hall in the yeshiva in Hebron, studying Talmud, when these barbarians burst into the room and slaughtered him. And this was the beginning of a bloodbath. The Arabs went from house to house with knives and axes and slashed and chopped and murdered with macabre bloodlust, torturing their victims and raping women. Those fortunate enough to survive were maimed, having their hands and feet severed. To no one's surprise, the British authorities knew exactly what was happening and didn't lift a finger. Rabbi Avram's older brother, Rabbi Moshe Grudzinski, and his son and daughter-in-law were hacked to pieces. His sister-in-law, Manucha, she survived miraculously by hiding behind a closet. The Hebron Yeshiva that he founded suffered tremendously in this massacre. 22 students were killed and 16 were wounded. Rabbi Avram's daughter writes how these events 
the cruel deaths of his brothers and his literal brother shattered him, and she saw him weeping inconsolably. Regarding these devastating twin tragedies, he quoted Job, who said, Od zemedaber vizeba. Before one finishes speaking about one tragedy, the next tragedy comes along. Those years were very difficult for him, obviously, and he still had to run the yeshiva. And he still had to make sure that the students had what they needed. And 1929 was, of course, the financial crash in the United States, and the flow of money that the yeshiva had coming in from the United States ended, and the yeshiva was in dire financial straits. And in a letter he writes that even bread was scarce in the yeshiva because they were so much in debt. When World War II broke out, his partner, Rabbi Isaac Sher, the Rosh Yeshiva of Slabatka, was in Switzerland, and he went straight to Israel. So for the duration of the war, Rabbi Avram was the sole leader of the yeshiva students in Slabatka. And even amidst the horrors of the inferno, Rabbi Avram was a portrait of equanimity and nobility. In 1939, when the war began, Lithuania became independent for a few months thanks to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And in 1940, the communists swallowed up Lithuania, making it a state in the USSR. And right away, the communists got down to business. They seized the yeshiva building, which was in fact a brand new building that had been built, and the yeshiva didn't even move in yet. And they take the building and they make it an entertainment center and they close the yeshiva. And most of the students disbanded. They scattered. And Rabbi Avram gave a message to the remaining students. He said, heaven is teaching us a very powerful lesson. We thought when we had the yeshiva that we were fulfilling Torah amidst poverty. But the truth is, is that heaven has revealed to us that no, we repudiated Torah amidst wealth. We made the yeshiva into entertainment center, and therefore it was indeed transformed into one. In 1941, in Operation Barbarossa, the Germans conquered Lithuania, and they moved all the Jews of Kovna, which is the city that Slabate is a suburb of, into the Kovna ghetto. Obviously, life in the ghetto was nightmarish. The Germans and their Lithuanian collaborators, who by all accounts were much more ruthless than the Germans, made aksias, actions. They would storm the ghetto and murder portions of the inhabitants. And Rabavram's home became the spiritual nerve center in Kovna. All the students, all the rabbis, everyone that was into Torah, coalesced into the Grudzinski house, studying together, hearing Torah lectures together, and fearfully awaiting the next Aktia. One of the rabbis, the famous rabbis of Europe that ended up in his home, was Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, the famed Rosh Hashiva of Baranovich, and he spent the final weeks of his life in the Kovna ghetto together with Rabbi Avram Grudzinski. Two days before he was killed, Rabbi Avram told Rabbi Hanan, you have to say a lecture. You have to give us a lecture in the laws of Kiddush Hashem, the laws of martyrdom, 
the laws of dying for God, the laws of dying because you're Jewish. Could you imagine giving a lecture in a ghetto to students when you don't know if you're going to make it through the day? So Rabbi Hanan Vasman tells him, I, I can't do it. I, I don't have the clarity of mind. And Ravram said to him, no, now is the time to say such a lecture. This is the mitzvah of the day. So he spent a few hours preparing and he gave a lecture. And when he finished the halachic discourse, Rabbi Avram delivered a fiery Musr discourse on the same subject. And on the 12th of Tammuz, 1941, Rabbi Wasserman was taken and together with 12 other rabbis and yeshiva students, including Velvul Grudzinski, Rabbi Avram's son, they were taken and murdered by Lithuanian Nazi collaborators. Rabbi Avram himself was spared this aktsiyah because due to his leg ailments, he was lying on the couch when the barbarians burst into the house and they didn't have the means to transport him, so they just left him there. In her book detailing her Holocaust experiences called Faith in the Night, his daughter Rifka Walby tells some of the harrowing stories about what they experienced during those years in the ghetto. I want to read to you one such story. We had asked a Jewish carpenter in the ghetto to build us a secret room. Our ghetto dwelling had a small alcove, about as wide as its doorway. The carpenter built a makeshift closet at the entrance of the alcove with a false back wall. When the door was opened, only the closet could be seen. We prepared various objects to place on the shelves in order to disguise the existence of the tiny room behind it. As soon as we heard the Jewish militia was going from house to house, rounding up volunteers to go work in Riga, which they knew was a death sentence, we removed the wooden board that served as the back of the closet and crowded into the alcove, closing the closet door behind us. We then filled the shelves with the items we had prepared. Among them, as Papa advised, half a loaf of bread and replaced the board. We sat in silence and waited, praying that Hashem would help us and the police wouldn't find us. At last, we heard the police climbing the stairs. Our hearts pounded with fear as they drew near. We heard them enter the apartment and search the rooms. No one was there for them to find. Finally, they opened the door of the closet. Fortunately, they could not hear our thumping hearts, for they would have discovered us. They saw the closet and its loaded shelves. The sight of the bread dazzled them so much that they didn't realize the closet was built of suspiciously new boards that could be a cover-up for a hiding place. They took the bread and left. Papa's idea to place the bread on the shelf had been a brilliant one. We had been saved miraculously again. Rabbi Avram ultimately spent three more years in the ghetto until he was killed. The conditions in the ghetto were obviously ghastly. But through it all, Rabbi Avram maintained his regalness, his equanimity, and his perspective. When the Germans initially entered the ghetto, the townsfolk, Rabbi Avram included, escaped the city. But unlike the townsfolk, Rabbi Avram made sure that he was dressed in full rabbinic regalia before he left. Someone asked him, why? Why do you get dressed up to go escape the city? 
It's a halacha, he replied, in quote of the Talmud, the Talmud book of Sarah, page 92b says, even in a time of danger, a man should not depart from his stature. There were times when they would go days with no food. And when he finally got a piece of bread, you could not tell from his eating that he hadn't eaten in several days. His majesty, his royalty was untouched. His caring for others also never ceased. After the Atsia, everyone who survived it would be relieved, but Rabavram would dwell on the pain and the suffering of others and cry for them. But he insisted, as is consistent with Halacha, that no one cry or mourn on Shabbos. Another quote from Faith in the Night, written by his daughter, Rivka Wolby. Every Friday night, the surviving yeshiva students who had studied in Slabatka would meet in our house, the one room allotted to our family, where Papa would encourage them with words of Torah. These young men were broken in body and spirit. They were the sole survivors of their families, and the harsh labor in the German factories had totally debilitated them. Hunger was their constant lot, and they suffered more than others in the ghettos because they had nothing at all to barter. Nonetheless, these young men came to us every Shabbos night to hear Papa's Musr talks. It wasn't easy for them to concentrate. Weakness, hunger, and fatigue nearly overcame them. But Papa's words of encouragement and consolation gave them the strength to continue and to not break under the strain. After the talk, they would daven mirev, they would pray the evening prayers with the minion, with a quorum of men, which was a rarity in the ghetto. We couldn't understand from where Papa drew his spiritual strength, his ability to concentrate on his studies and to encourage others under such difficult conditions when he too was starving. During all the years in the ghetto, he continued to study, to inspire, and to strengthen. Amazingly, Papa never lost his composure. Although he was always serious, he was also serene at all times and under all circumstances. His countenance glowed through all these dark ghetto years. He was so gaunt from hunger that it was nearly impossible to recognize him, yet nothing fazed him. Papa's calmness influenced everyone who came into contact with him, especially his students and acquaintances who frequently approached him for advice and consolation. Most people in the ghetto, however, lived in a state of perpetual frenzy, dreading what the next moment would bring. Where will we obtain food? Can we find better and easier work? When should we hide? Where? These basic existential questions made them anxious and prone to panic and terror. Their anguish was heightened by the painful fact that most of them were the sole survivors of their families. Their relatives had been seized before their very eyes, and even more shattering, they did not know what had happened to them. These tortured souls found solace with our family. They would hear words of Torah and words of encouragement and found consolation that partially relieved their suffering. In Papa's company, they were reinvigorated. His words of Torah and comfort enabled them to continue their tormented lives. Papa never complained, never expressed his anxiety verbally. He teaches us, that under all conditions, man must maintain his stature and composure. 
Perhaps the story that is most revealing about his composure in the ghetto was the way he processed what was happening to him. Even us today, 80 years after the Holocaust, we have a very hard time wrestling with what was God doing? What was the meaning of it? How do we process such never-before-seen calamities? And many would argue that it's actually not appropriate for someone who did not endure the hell of the Holocaust to even ponder or speculate on that question. But we have accounts how Rabavram, the exemplar of Slabatka, how he processed and how he dealt with these questions in the ghetto, in the most appalling and inhumane conditions ever experienced by people in history, with abject starvation, with people being indiscriminately snatched and shot and brutalized and beaten, with babies being murdered, with communities being savagely devastated, with families being torn apart, with murder and devastation everywhere, with his own children taken away in front of his eyes. Rabbi Ram Grzynski, together with a small cadre of students, broached these difficult questions. In classic Musser fashion, they began an introspection of what we need to do to improve ourselves. Musser teaches us that everything you encounter, you must apply inwardly and see how you can improve, not to cast blame on others. He proved from the Talmudic discussion regarding Abraham's intercession on behalf of the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah, that if you have ten tzaddikim, ten righteous people, you can save an entire city. So he said, we're going to do this. We're going to assemble a group of ten people, and we're going to try to be the ten people to save the city. Based upon myriad sources in the Talmud, he actually identified twelve areas where the nation was found wanting, and he urged his students to reinforce themselves in those areas, maybe the city could be spared. But those plans, those entreaties, went unanswered. In 1943, the Nazis liquidated the ghetto, and all able-bodied people were taken to work, and everyone else was killed. At that time, Rubavram was hiding in a bunker, and when the Nazi beasts finally caught him, They kicked him so hard, they smashed his pelvis, and he physically was incapable of walking. And they took him to a hospital where he was placed with all the other sick prisoners. And eventually, the Nazis made an announcement to the hospital, any able-bodied people come to the field or die. Amid excruciating pain, he asked the people around him, to be lifted up and to be brought to the field and to be held up by the field. And they asked him, why? Don't you know that you can't even stand? You would immediately collapse? And he responded, we are right now holding in the altar's lecture on Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 12, when Jonah is about to be thrown into the water, he tells the sailors, Sauni vahatiluni, take me, Lift me and throw me overboard. And the altar asked the question, why is he adding some words here? If you're going to go overboard, just jump. Why did Jonah ask the sailors to lift him and to throw him into the waters? And the altar deduced from this story that Jonah is teaching us a lesson. It would take longer 
for him to die, for Jonah to die, if he had to be dragged and thrown off a board. And he would merit to live a few more seconds of life. This story teaches us how precious every second of life is. And like we said, Rabbi Ram exemplified the ideal that halacha governs every conceivable life situation. And he tells the people around him, right now I'm like Jonah, and my responsibility right now is to extend my life for a few minutes. So uni lift me up and carry me to the field. This is what I need to do right now. In his mind, his teacher's lectures and teachings were perfectly organized. And now he encountered, he's living the part about extending life. And he's grasping for a little bit more life. They tried to lift him, but he was in such excruciating pain, it was impossible to move him, and he remained in the hospital. We actually have an account of what he was saying the last few moments in the hospital. He spoke about Rabbi Tiva and his martyrdom, and he declared that I'm not scared of dying, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm concerned about the defilement of my Tzalem of the godly image that I was created in. And on the 22nd day of Thomas, 1944, the Nazi beasts burned down the hospital that he was located in with all its occupants. One of his students who was actually with him and managed to escape came to the side of the hospital two days later, hoping maybe to find some bones, to find some ashes. Maybe there will be some remnants to bury. And it was eerie. There was nothing there. The hospital was a wooden structure built upon a concrete slab and only the concrete slab and the metal frames of what used to be beds remained after the inferno. In a lecture that Rabbi Avram had given in 1938, he said a powerful idea. We're told to always be ready for martyrdom, should the opportunity arise. But true martyrdom is not jumping into the fire, but calmly walking slowly into the fire. That's what it's all about. Like all his teachings, these were not ideas. This was halacha that penetrated his lifeblood. Rabbi Avram left a tremendous legacy. Of his eight children, four of his children, three sons, Eliezer, Zev, who everyone called Velvel and Yisrael, and a daughter, Miriam, four of his children were murdered by the Nazis. Four of his children survived. His daughter, Sarah, married Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth a legendary rabbi and scholar who served for 50 years as the chief rabbi of Antwerp in Belgium. His daughter Leah married Rabbi Baruch Rosenberg, another legendary scholar who was the Rosh Hashiva of the Slabat Yeshiva when it reconstituted in Israel. His one surviving son, Yitzchak, who spent the formative years of his life hiding from the Nazis and stealing potatoes he moved to Israel and founded a kolel, kolel Torah Savram, named after his father, and he published his father's work, Torah Savram. And the greatest of his daughters, Rivka, married Rabbi Shlomo Wobi, my grandfather, 
the greatest Musser master of the post-war yeshiva world. His Musser discourses from 1937 to 1940 were salvaged and published in Israel in a book called Torah Savram, and it's a book without any parallel. They portray Rabavram as a man of stunning depth, with fierce intelligence, with a rigorousness and density that I've never seen in any book. Each word is purposeful. Each line is a condensed lecture. Each idea, novel and profound. His lectures that he delivered in the ghetto were written too, but those are lost. Rabbi Rodzinski was the greatest student of the altar, was the exemplar of Slabatka, was a man of unparalleled nobility and distinction. He was an angel walking among men. Learning about him makes us feel small. But learning his story, learning about this great titanic personality, shows us what a man can become. And it shows us also what we have lost. May his holy soul advocate on behalf of the entire Jewish people in heaven. And may we all be inspired by his story and by his example. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. This is the Jewish History Podcast. I work for Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. Our website is torchweb.org. My email address is rabbiwolbygym.com. Please email me with any questions, comments, or feedback. And again, please check out my other podcasts, This Jewish Life, the Parsha Podcast, Torah 101, the Mitzvah Podcast, and the Ethics Podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.